0: Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. You are joining us on part two of our discussion of Faulty Towers. If you haven't listened to part one, you better go back and find that one first, because otherwise this won't make any sense. We've already talked about John Cleese and Connie Boo, then we're halfway through the episode that we're looking at, which is the very last episode, Basil the Rat. And we're going to jump straight back into that, but stay tuned. We're going to talk all about Andrew Sachs, Prunella Scales, and of course the legacy of Faulty Towers. Do please enjoy. Let's jump back into our episode where we're about to find out that Manuel has a pet rat. Yes. And that is going to spark off most of the uh, hilarity that ensues. Mm-hmm.
1: Manuel presumably is on his day off, and he's decided to wear a silk dressing
0: gown because <laughs> it's his day off. Yes. Well, he's wearing a silk dressing gown, also wearing a collared shirt with bow tie and a lovely <laughs> his cardigan. <waiters>. Yes, yeah, <laughs> his, wait- his waiter's outfit. So, yeah, maybe he was just, you know, he's about to go to work in about ten minutes, so he's be- <laughs> He better just <laughs> got dressed for work but thought, well, I'll just, I'll just relax a bit for five. <laughs> I'll put myself a dressing on. And this is the very first time we've ever seen Manuel's bedroom. This is a new set. Mm-hmm. And this is interesting, particularly in the second series, they really use a lot of sets. The set itself is quite impressive. That big open lobby area. Yeah. It's really big, it's expansive. And we, we you know... It's easy to point out that the windows are made of cling film. It looks like sure. <laughs> very bendy plastic. Anyway, the backcloth outside the door looks like a piece of backcloth <laughs> about yeah. three inches away from the door. It's really not well done. Uh, there's a lot of wobbly walls and things like that. But here, here, Alan, let it looks me great. Right. So I'm thinking <laughs> of sets, faulty towers.
1: So I think of the lobby. I think of the restaurant. I think of the bar. There's the kitchen, and then there's I can think mm-hmm. of several bedrooms. Like in Kipper and the Cops, we go in lots of different bedrooms and as you yep. said in this episode we've got Manuel's bedroom now two questions for you how many sets do we have and what's the difference between series one and series two Did they bring in a lot more sets in the second series?
0: Not really your basics there are the lobby restaurant on one side bar on the other kitchen behind the restaurant mm-hmm. and then upstairs you've got essentially a corridor
1: yeah
0: that's your sets then when you want to go into a room you've just got a room it's four walls you can kind of change that you can make one room look like another room I know they, they built the set and then brought it down week by week. So, they would change it depending on what they needed. So, if they knew they weren't going to use the bar, they wouldn't have the bar there. And that means they had more room to throw in one the another bedrooms. I see. And it was really cramped. Uh, if they had a few bedrooms to use, they were going to have very little space. And also, you've got the set, obviously, the audience facing that main lobby set with the restaurant to the side. So anything in the kitchen is kind of out of view from the audience. Mm-hmm. And anything that's bedroom, upstairs, corridor, anything like that, it's behind the lobby set with a whole different set of cameras filming. Okay. So they can go right there and do it, but the audience is only watching it on monitors. And that has a knock-on effect because you're not going to get the laughter quite sure. the same way. Plus it was really cramped, very very tight spaces and everything. So very limited in those small bedrooms, limited camera angles and things like that. Whereas in the lobby and the and the restaurant, they really do get quite inventive with the different angles and the two uh, series, if you if you listen to the DVD commentaries on the series, the first series has a commentary by John Howard Davis who directed it and the second series has a commentary by Robert Spears who directed that. Mm-hmm. And the Bob Spears one particularly is very good if you were interested in the technical side of stuff because he really goes into a lot of detail about how they did that. Yeah. And he's obviously a very technical director. And he has great praise for all the all the crew and everything like that, as you would expect. It was a real challenge even compared to other sitcoms because things were so fast, they were cutting so much more often. And and this is what I was talking about, doing farce on TV. It turns out is extremely difficult. <laughs> So that is Manuel's room. is just another set. Uh, ultimately, it's just a room. You know, that's the first time we've ever seen it. But the important thing is, he has a filigree Siberian his hamster. Filigree,
1: <laughs> yes,
0: yeah. Which Basil obviously immediately recognises actually a rat. But
1: Manuel and... is Manuel is so attached to this rat, isn't he? You know, as the episode <laughs> plays out, it's the most important thing in his
0: world. Which is, it surprises me how attached he is to it. Well, it's his pet. He's had it for a year, yeah, and you know he's quite a lonely man. I think. Okay. I right? yeah, yeah. Well, shall we talk about Manuel more generally? Yeah. As
1: soon as we're as soon as we're touching on Manuel, let's uh, let's analyse the character a little bit.
0: Yeah, because Manuel is he simple? <laughs> <laughs> is he officially simple, or is he just slightly lost in the language? What do you think? Well, there's a question. How old is Manuel? <laughs>
1: how old is he supposed to be because i get the idea of this spanish waiter student coming over and trying to learn the language but manuel's 40. he must be <laughs> like andrew Sachs is not a young man when he's playing this character manuel is not yeah. 18. so what's I, i'm desperate to know manuel's backstory why is he in torquay what's he doing over here well, the franco government has just fallen in spain <laughs> it's the
0: birth of flowering of democracy why
1: has he come to torquay <laughs>
0: Well, in the first series, I believe Franco was still in power. That was okay. perhaps Maybe perhaps the reason. is a little out because there's a couple of references to him actually. But yeah, it was the tail end of that. It's a an, another one, kind of like Polly, I suppose. We never get any real backstory for him. We we find out, you know, he's got five brothers and four sisters and, and all that sort of thing. And at some point, he's come over to Britain, and this is the only job he could get. I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> because he doesn't speak English very well. Basil has hired him because he's cheap. yeah, And he can tr- mold him in his own image, much to Sybil's annoyance. Mm-hmm. And that's partly it as well. Basil should just go, oh, you're an idiot. Get out. You're sacked. But he can't because he hired him. And if he sacks him, that's an admission to Sybil, Sybil that he was wrong. He's
1: right. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: So he can't. He, he's stuck with him. You talk about how he's trying to mould
1: him in his image. I absolutely love the way, with the physical comedy. I love the really sweet way that Manuel sort of inter- impersonates Basil. Yeah. When John Cleese is leaping about, you'll see Manuel sort of look at him and, and kind of take in what he's doing, and he'll just sort of do the same yeah. movements as, like, like a dog might copy its owner. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It's very puppy-like. Yeah, so that is a good, a uh, good analogy for Manuel. That is sort of the the secret to Manuel working as a character that he is very lovable. He's sweet. He's positive and sweet all the time. Yeah. That's what makes the comedy work in the sense that Basil is horrible to him all the time. If he was hurt by it, if he was affected emotionally by it, it wouldn't be funny. It'd be trash. It's a phenomenal amount of physical abuse. (laughs) There is a
1: lot of violence in that relationship. And yes, Yes. it has to be played for laughs because otherwise it would be horrific. It would be a horrific situation Mm. that this guy was stuck in. This Basil's wife, this Basil, this smack on head,
0: speaking of the violence actually i think particularly in the first series that's encouraged by john howard davis who was the director in his dvd commentary that i listened to john howard davis it's not a good commentary at all he forgets to talk most of the time and then occasionally and then something violent will happen he was like oh, that's not hard enough should have hit him harder but i was in david leans Oliver back in 48 where we used to hit each other very hard it was very funny that's basically john howard davis's commentary (laughs) there you go you don't need to listen to it now you just heard it uh very violent man very concerned with the violence being more violent and the only thing other thing he really talks about is the costumes and and like hair and stuff like that look at that jacket absolutely wonderful jacket um that sort of thing
1: (laughs) hey let me ask you this here's a tangent is the dvd commentary was that just a 15 year thing while dvds were common currency do you get obviously it's not a dvd but do you get commentaries
0: anymore i think you still do but there was a real it was the real selling point of dvds for a while yeah it was that was why you would buy it on dvd and not on vhs yeah exactly yeah i will say that the john cleese commentary on the on this series is really excellent he gives a lot of interesting information, and he also he's really finds it very funny, and he laughs at it a lot, and it's quite nice <laughs> quite con- it's quite contagious laughter. He's really enjoying it, and he's extremely positive about everyone. In this business, twenty years, I've never heard of Norwegian veal. No, well, they've only just branched into it. You know, I don't think it's a winner, <laughs> frankly. You know, more of
1: a veal substitute. It's got a lot of air pockets in it. That's all. The the, uh, the lamb is Dutch. Dutch. Well, English. I mean, we call it Dutch because it's as good as the veal. It's better, quite honestly.
0: Well, I prefer the veal. Yes. How about
1: lobster? <laughs> i <laughs> a couple of <laughs> lobsters Two for you like the Perhaps you prefer the chicken. I love that line. That's very good. He's just firm. you see, He doesn't get put off. Nice movement with Connie coming in like that, just as they go out of the other door. That's what fast is all about. Is those kind of rhythms, just keeping the pace up. That's no good. That might have poison on it too. I do like it when people laugh at their own work. I, 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 that's good. That's good that they've not that it's not become a ball and chain, and that they've not written it to death. Yeah. That they're still yeah. they can still enjoy it. And John Cleese has got a great laugh as well. Mm-hmm. It's like a very wheezy <laughs> laugh. Uh, Before we yeah, let's let's go back to Manuel. So so
0: here's the question: oh, yeah.
1: Is it still okay to laugh at Spanish like this? Like,
0: is this <laughs> is this an acceptable character in 2021? I think the reason why it's okay is because this isn't a Spanish stereotype. I think it's just, he's foreign because we need the language barrier, and perhaps it gives us a funny little foreigner, their Mm. ways are different to ours kind of feel. But you're playing that against Basil, who's like the ultimate little Englander, so that's okay. I guess. Manuel could be, it could be Italian or French and the character would be the same, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, in the Spanish dub, I believe he's Italian in the... ah, yes, <laughs> and then, course, uh, yeah. you know, in, in the other dubs that, you he know, he plays different. Things. I think if he was like a Spanish stereotype, I'm not quite sure what that would be. But I think if you were playing into a kind of racist stereotype, it would be much more problematic. It doesn't feel offensive in quite the same way. Yeah. And in fact, Andrew Sachs actually asked if he could be German. Um, because Andrew Sachs himself was German, German so yeah. it would have been easier for him. Uh, but, but John Cleese was like, nah, I think he has to be Spanish. But I think that was down to John Cleese's experiences of foreign waiters, and <laughs> yeah. they were mostly Spanish, I guess, at that particular period. That was his yeah. idea of what they were. So,
1: Shall we talk about Andrew Sachs then? Sure. I
0: don't know much about Andrew Sachs
1: other than he was in Fawlty Towers, and then Russell Brand got fired for ringing him up. And that's it. That's all I've got. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're telling me that before Faulty Towers, Andrew Sachs was a, an actor
0: who did a lot of uh, management videos? <laughs> Not a lot, but certainly that was part of his uh, repertoire, yeah. Born in 1930, so he was in his late 40s by the, the time right. that he was Manuel, yeah. Born in Germany, sort of fled Germany in 1938 for um, well-known historical reasons, and settled in London, obviously picked up the accent very well, and ended up doing um, standard radio rep Mm theatre, just a jobbing actor. But a decent jobbing actor, doing stuff on the West End and all that sort of thing. But he was particularly good at physical comedy, and that is obviously why he got the job of, of Manuel. John Cleese, I do believe, like I said, I think he'd worked on some video arts things, but John Cleese saw him in a show doing something very physical. I think it was a, a farce. Right, yeah, he'd be perfect. He's also quite small. I think he's about five foot five or something. So yeah. he's about ten inches shorter than John Cleese. Which is hilarious. Which obviously hilarious. We we understand that. Manuel's certainly the highlight of his career in terms of public awareness but has been a jobbing actor for many many years and certainly in later years did a lot of voice work because you know if you actually hear him out of character he's got a very silky smooth beautiful Mm -hmm. voice Mm -hmm. and did a lot of narration a lot of voiceover work and that sort of thing
1: i'd never been a regular on tv and i thought well if if i am i know what it's like that people recognize you in the street and you get
0: an image and that's how you look i thought well i could I'd always done disguise things because I never liked to reveal myself at that time very much. And I thought uh, the
1: ideal would be a moustache. I'll ask if I ask the producer if I can have a moustache. And I thought he'll never let me because John was wearing mustache. They won't have two moustaches in the same show.
0: And he also he, he did a bit of writing. He wrote the occasional radio play and things like that. A couple of stage plays, nothing particularly major. But you know he had that string to his bow as well. Earned a bit of money doing that. He he was in the uh, Are You Being Served film, playing a Spanish guy there as well, but um, as a hotel manager who with a much better grasp of English, quite a different character, but still doing the accent. Mm -hmm. So perhaps a little bit (laughs) typecast. And then yeah, and then when he was a very old man, some people on the radio called him up and said, "Hey, I've shagged your granddaughter." It's funny, isn't it? And he's quite hurt by that. Yeah, you know what? Actually, before we move on from that,
1: like we, we're throwing that away as a little aside. But that incident where it was Russell Brand and Jonathan Ross, wasn't it, where they rang up Andrew Sachs because yeah. Russell Brand had had a relationship with Andrew Sachs' his granddaughter, and yada yada yada. I'm sure our listeners know the story. But I think that has had an impact. On British sitcoms, certainly on the BBC, because I've heard mm-hmm. uh, lots of British comedians talk about trying to get work on the BBC, and the levels of compliance, the levels of hoops they have to jump through, and the level of checking, is this acceptable or not, really went up after that incident, and the media fallout from that incident.
0: Yes, when was that? 2010 or something? I well, guess it was, I, I guess it was about now, 10 years ago, yeah. Yeah. I think in another sort of 15, 20 years, we might be able to look back and sort of be able to see a real shift. We could look at the BBC output and actually see a difference. Yeah. Perhaps a bit too early to tell now. These things yeah. take a long time to kind of trundle along. And so the rest of the episode is basically them running around after this rat. Mm. Don't let the health inspector see the rat. Oh my God, look what the rat's doing. Yeah, And it is quite a straightforward episode, this in fact, compared to some of the others, which are very detailed and structured and lots of things layering in. This one is relatively simple. I think that the scripts for Fawlty Towers in general are quite complex. But it's interesting the way you've just discussed the episode there,
1: and we have discussed the episode there, in that we talked for quite a long time about the first two or three scenes... And then you've just basically dismissed the next 15 minutes as, yeah, yeah, there's a bit of this, there's a bit of that. And that's kind of how the episode's constructed. They put those building blocks in, and now the rest of the episode is just stirring the pot, whipping them together, creating that problem and and building that that farcical pressure. But what I will say, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking back to when we discussed One Foot in the Grave, we were a little critical of it in that it was very sketchy. So for example, we talked about that episode with the car in the skip. And that's a really great mm-hmm. visual punchline, big laugh. But actually, it's not really in context with the rest of the episode. It's just this sort of little sketch. It's very funny, but doesn't really fit. It's not particularly well constructed. I think Faulty Towers is the opposite of that. The episode is very well put together. It's very well constructed. As mm-hmm. I said, you spend the first 10 minutes building those blocks and then you whip it all around and it all pays off right at the end. And there's, there's a lot less
0: waste. It's a lot more mm-hmm. cohesive. And for the large part, all those building blocks are put together in a way that is funny, natural and kind mm. of seamless. It doesn't feel like you're just dropping things in for later. Yes. For the most part, a couple of exceptions, but you know, that's okay. Uh, just speaking of that, actually, in this episode, there's a couple of things that stood out to me as being out of ordinary for Faulty Towers in that we didn't really see how they came about. They take great care to make sure that you're seeing what's getting set up and make sure you you see the line of how did this go from here to here. Mm. And there's a couple of examples here where we don't get that. One of them is when the health inspector sits down on a chair and sits on a plate of veal. The reason it's there is because- We did see that, I'm sure we saw that. We saw Basil
1: put that down a minute ago.
0: No, we didn't. We see Basil take them off the table and walk away and then we cut to the kitchen. We never see him put them on those chairs. And that's what i mean it's a big miss that's it's really weird so, that we didn't see so that my, my imagination has, has filled that scene in so do you think that's something that was filmed and cut
1: or just a, a, an omission
0: i think it's got lost in the edit for whatever reason they it just took too long mm. and they just decided do you know what yeah it doesn't make sense we don't get to see it but it's completely killing the pace if we show him doing it especially if you if you actually think about where that he would have to put them it would have been a really weird, unnatural move. Why not just put him down on the table? Yeah. So there must have been some whole business about him. He can't put him on the table because of this. I can't put him here because of this. I'm just gonna hide him on the chair. Yeah. And obviously it didn't work. But that is very unusual because they're usually very, very tight with that sort of stuff. And then there's another example, if I may just jump right to the very end, where we have this big reveal at the end, which we'll get to, but then Basil kind of deals with it in that moment, walks off camera, and then the next we see of him about 20 seconds later is Manuel dragging him out of the room, because he's fainted, I assume. But we don't see him faint, we don't see him reach a crescendo point where he's going to faint. Obviously, the stress of the situation has got to him. And I think it's a beautiful ending for the series and for the character, ultimately, but... We don't see it. No, it's I quite really like that. Weird that we don't I take see your that. point,
1: Alan. I do take your point, but I quite like that. The Basil's disappeared. He's off camera, and you're thinking, "What? What's going to happen? He's going to come back. There's going to be this big faulty explosion, and
0: we just see Andrew Sachs drag him out of out the room." I, I quite liked it. I agree. On paper, that could work, but there's something it just doesn't fit. So, just to jump back a bit, what we're getting here is very anti-rat propaganda. It's, really, <laughs> it's a real kind of. If that was a hamster, it'd be fine. But a rat, that's disgusting. Even if it's in a cage. They're bothered about this. Yeah, they're bothered about having a pet rat in a cage. There's a cat wandering around the kitchen. Nobody gives a toss. There's a dog.
1: One of the guests has got a dog as well. It's not in this episode, <laughs> but one of the guests has got a bloody dog wandering around the
0: kitchen, eating eating food off the table. It's disgusting. <laughs> but in this particular episode, the cat is so egregious because it's an episode about health in the kitchen. Yeah. And the, the they just have to have the cat keep wandering in. Plus... Never, ever seen a cat there before. It's completely Chekhov's cat. (laughs) And that is another example of quite weak script writing that they haven't put that in in a more natural way. And like I say, it really stands out compared to the rest of the series, which is quite tight. But it does give them the opportunity to do all the fun stuff with the veal Yeah. So Basil puts poison all over a piece of veal and just leaves it in the middle of the kitchen floor to catch the rat, because that is not going to jump out at a health inspector. (laughs) Poison all over the kitchen floor. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, and then a a physical bit that is done really well, where Manuel knocks all the veal over right on the spot where this poisoned veal is and no one else has noticed it. Yeah. Although there is an obviously accidental bit where Polly stands on the veal that's on the floor and slips <laughs> and almost that. falls over and then kind of just quickly doesn't acknowledge it in character and just sort of tries to get on with it. <laughs> I didn't notice that. <laughs> that was definitely an accident. So, yes, and then we have a whole uh, bit of like, which one's the poison veal? Oh, well, the cat's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, the cat's sick. It's not a poison veal. Running in and out. Classic farce. Yep. Done very nicely I think but it's still
1: fast you know I totally agree with you I think this is as well executed <laughs> as it can be and yet at this point in the show I'm starting to get a bit bored I'm like okay come on come on I, I get this we're going to be running in and out of the kitchen and grabbing the plate just as he starts to eat and
0: it's like okay okay it's not my thing you know yes uh one thing we we definitely need to mention is the major Oh yes. Uh, who has a, a a pretty major role in this episode? Actually, one of his bigger parts. Well, talk about talk about him in this episode, and then we'll we'll talk about him in a little bit more detail. He discovers the rat wandering along the bar, and you know, in his wisdom, goes and gets his shotgun to, to blast it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lovely bit of physical comedy here where he managed to go up the stairs, get his gun, and come back down just in sort of Basil's peripheral vision. Yeah, that's the sort of really nice detail that makes this you can see the artistry behind this and the real kind of comedy talent as opposed to Basil stood there and sees him walking with a gun and he's like what the hell's going on he actually doesn't quite see him it's little things like that that really do sell this this guy Ballard Berkeley, who plays the Major he is really good at this (laughs) this particular character I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else so I'm sure he's a very good actor but he is just great, this slightly confused, befuddled old man. Yeah. They play off it really nicely here because the Major knows exactly what he's talking about, but Basil doesn't understand what he's going on about, and that is a nice sort of twist on the usual um, way they go, but it creates the same level of comedy. Do you uh, need any help, Major? Come <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> We haven't got any this week, Major.
1: Mm. No Germans staying this week, Major. (laughs) I'm going to shoot him, Faulkner. Yes, Major. Hmm? Not not legal, actually, anymore. Murder. But uh, animals, Faulkner? Oh, yes, yes. Still, forgive and forget, eh? (laughs) Forgive? Well, pretend we do. desperate disease faulty he was sitting there on that table eating the nuts if you please he's really gone this time well the relationship between basil and the major is is a really interesting one going back to what we were saying before about basil's station in life you know he wants to have the gourmet night and a better class of person and the major does fulfill those criteria. he's more establishment than basil and so he represents that world that basil wants but he's a senile old man. <laughs> and, you know, so, and so it, it, he's flawed. He's not that quite that perfect character that Basil wants. So he's sort of glad to have him in the hotel, but he has to sort of tolerate him and he's stuck with this guy. Yeah. What I would like to know is how, who's living in a hotel? There's, there's the major, there's the two old ladies. Yeah. How's that work? You, why do you live in a
0: hotel? Was that thing in the 70s? People know. just retired into a hotel. <laughs>
1: there weren't so many care homes back then, so people just stayed in a
0: hotel. I guess aren't? so, yeah. If you've got money... Yeah, you just retire to the seaside and uh, live in a hotel where someone will look after you. You don't have to do your own cooking or anything. Yeah, maybe that's all it is. I don't think that really happens anymore, does it? But yeah, an interesting character, and and also,
1: I mean, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, there's a couple of occasions in the series where he uses racial epithets that um, mm. that you know we wouldn't, that are not acceptable anymore. Mm. And I think that even in 1975, 90, sorry 1977, when this went out, he was seen as a, a, a bit of a racist old man and a bit of a throwback. And so, whilst yeah, the yeah. the language might have been more acceptable then, it was still not right. It was still oh gosh, Major, you
0: shouldn't, that shouldn't use that word. This raised its head last year, I think, when um, one of the channels that was repeating it just decided to not show that episode. Right. Which is odd, because it was so easy to just cut that little bit out. Mm. It's not plot relevant. It, yeah, it's, it's not... just the major having a little rant, isn't it? It's not needed for the plot. Yeah. And in fact, that's what the BBC did. The BBC put this out as like a box set thing on iPlayer this year. It's just gone up. Yeah. And uh, indeed, it has been cut out. There's just, you know, they've just cut the 20 seconds out of that. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's, that's fine. It's kind of courting controversy where it's not relevant, it's not needed. I do understand why you do that. Although, I do also believe that if you were, if you're going to re. Retain this original production. I want to see what it was as its original production. I, I have the capacity to see something like that in context. Even if it was racist. Like if you're showing me, hey, look, this is a racist film from 1975. Yeah. I can see it as what it is.
1: But I think that's... I mean, it's just that word. The major's character is no more or less racist whether he uses that word or not. But that word is... It's an inflammatory word. Like, if Mm. if you had a character today in a sitcom who was a bit old-fashioned and had an old-fashioned attitude towards women, and uh, you could have that character and it could be funny even. But if he, say, used the C word to describe them, oh my God, that's a whole different thing. You can't have that on a mainstream sitcom. Mm. Now, the N word is in that same league, but it wasn't in 1977. And so it's really simple, yeah. just don't use that word. The character can be the
0: same, the whole basic gist of it can be the same, just, just that word is inflammatory so get rid of it. And there's a lot of racial epithets being thrown around, particularly towards Manuel, mm-hmm. which are a lot more insulting, frankly, uh, in their use in the way they're being used, yeah. uh, but obviously the, the words just don't have quite the same power. Yeah, It's a sort of classic thing with, uh, with old older shows where these things get uh, caught up in uh, modern uh, morality but we understand that. So... Balard Berkeley, who played the major, uh, another one who's just a very jobbing actor, got more notoriety from this than anything else in his career, was well into his 70s by this point, and definitely did a few more sitcom comedy roles after this, in a, a very similar sense of a slightly befuddled old military man. Mm-hmm. He was a regular in Fresh Fields.
1: I remember that, Julia McKenzie. Anton Rogers.
0: Yeah, but, you know, he was guest star in all sorts of mm-hmm. things, playing old men. So this was, gave him a little bit of a, a flurry of fame in his later years.
1: Right. Okay,
0: take us back to the episode then. Is there anything else to talk
1: about during this
0: episode oh, before yes. we get
1: to the final scene?
0: We have all the business in the restaurant with the, the rat. Um, here, all the stuff with the live rat was filmed... It was a a rare example of them filming stuff before on set, as in they had two days on set instead of one which okay. was very unusual. In fact, it was the only time they did it. It just doesn't fit with the budget and the process of the BBC. What do you mean? Is that just an animal welfare thing? No, it's just a practical thing. The rat's not going to do what we want it to do when we want it to do it. So, you know, we can't do it as a live performance. This was a slightly unusual circumstance. The last two episodes of this series were filmed uh, during a strike. It was the 70s after all and uh, the BBC crew workers went on strike. The previous episode, the anniversary, that got delayed, and so they'd rehearsed for a week. And so when they came back, they got to rehearse again. And so it was much more rehearsed than uh, the others, and they were happy ah, with that. But then strike action continued, and so this sixth episode got delayed. Delayed enough that it didn't go out with the rest of the series. I'm not sure in terms of filming how long it got delayed, but it got delayed enough that it missed its slot, and then it didn't get shown until six months later, oh. which I, I suspect was probably when they repeated the series. Uh, you I know, it's about six yes. months after the first one got out. Yeah, oh, let's put 40 Towers 2 out again. And this time we've got the other episode. We're going to <laughs> we can finish it off. Yeah. But I think it was filmed about the same time, but just too late for the series. And it also meant they just had a bit more time to work with this. And the producer managed to wangle two days on set, or two days in studio building the set the day before, I guess. That just meant they had a bit more time to rehearse in the space and all that. So, in that sense, it should be smoother than usual. But there's so many elements here that are little sort of practical, farcical elements with the rat. And a rat scurrying across the floor, which is obviously a bit of brown fur on a fishing line um let's, just to talk of the rat i guess a <laughs> coup yeah. de gras where it pops out of the well, this changes thing. color three times <laughs> and size significantly yeah. <laughs> yeah. this is an example of what i'm talking about when i'm saying like they've obviously done the best they could and yeah. it's not good enough it's just not good enough On stage, you can get away with it, it's just funny, it's part of a live performance. On film, you would just do it a lot better, because you've got the time and money to do it. Mm. And here, we've got Caught in Between, and they've even had the time to do some filming with the rat on set, a live rat. But that rat popping up out of the biscuit tin is awful... The only way it's funny is because it's so bad. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, I was going to disagree with you there. I think it's hilarious. I think it's really funny. It's a really funny visual punchline, and part of that punchline is how obviously crap that puppet mouse is.
0: Yeah, I just think I don't think I find that that funny. (laughs) No. Because that is not in keeping with the tone of the show. Really, that's not what the show is. It's not the young ones uh, where they do that sort of thing. There is some
1: legitimately good comic timing in the way that rat turns its head to look at the health inspector
0: is very well timed and you couldn't do that with a real rat could you no 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 that's (laughs) true and that rat the rat puppet there was being controlled by connie booth of course who's holding the biscuit tin Ah, she's got her hand under the tin with a little you know lever or something (laughs) so that's a lovely bit of work and making it look uh, natural and i agree that it works on that level but it also fails to work on a kind of realism level which this show it's not silly in that way. On a similar note actually, in this episode, we have a posh couple who, mm-hmm. you know, are inadvertently offended because faulty's so distracted by the rat that he ends up being rude to them. Yeah. The actor playing the uh, posh bloke, David Neville. Yeah. That character and the characterization of it is so over the top and comedy, which would fit in a sitcom. But not this sitcom. And He's this very, show yeah. is a caricature, isn't he? And, yeah. Like, like, very punchable. <laughs> like,
1: like, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, <laughs> the, the point is that you're Faulty is behaving badly and ruining these people's meal. But you kind of think, oh, shut your face, you. <laughs> you you're on Faulty's side. What are you doing? What? He had his hand in my bag. What? No, uh, I. You know something. You're getting my dander up, you grotty little man. <laughs> Asking for a bunch of fives. Bomb scare. What?
0: And in fact, I would argue that it's the worst performance in the entire show. Mm. Not necessarily; it's a bad form. It's just the complete wrong tone. And yes, ha- and yes I
1: got. It shouldn't
0: that. have slipped through. This show, Fawlty Towers, completely is cast so well throughout, not just the leads, but the guest stars that come in and just have two lines. They're always perfect. They're always really nailed on. The rehearsal process was really involved. Everyone was kind of treated as an equal. People were allowed to throw out suggestions and stuff like that. It was a really collaborative atmosphere, even though it was really hardworking and John Cleese is a perfectionist about his comedy. It was a really good atmosphere. Most of the people who come in are friends of John Cleese. And for the most part, it works really, really well. And I think this is the worst example of that. Yeah, okay, I, I don't disagree. As a side note, the woman of that couple, who is Sabina Franklin, she was once married to John Chalice. Oh, bloody hell, another one. <laughs> I think we're going to get one every series. That's yeah. my, my
1: goal. We should plan our release schedule to coincide with John Chalice's ex-wives. <laughs> <laughs> although
0: interesting one of the other dinner guests there a bit little earlier another couple uh, they have their veal taken away from them mm-hmm. yep. uh, the woman there is Andrew Sachs's wife oh okay it essentially an extra but she gets to have a couple of lines so uh, that, that very end point with the rat in the biscuit tin and Basil goes would you like a rat with your cheese mm-hmm <laughs> It's a great little moment. The health inspector is obviously just completely befuddled. He can't even speak. And they just carry on as if it's normal. As if it's not happened. It's what I like to call the kick Bishop Brennan (laughs) up the arse. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's
1: funny, I was going to say exactly that same reference. (laughs) Exactly that reference.
0: Well, it's certainly not a coincidence because Arthur Matthew and Graham Linhan have gone on record that Fawlty Tower is a big inspiration for Father Ah, Ted in terms of style and comedy and stuff. And that moment particularly, I think, is a direct inspiration.
1: Well, as I've said before, earlier today and on many previous episodes, farce is not my favourite thing and the physical comedy is not really what appeals to me. And there are elements yeah. in Faulty Towers of what does appeal to me, which is just that well-delivered line, the comic timing of a well-delivered line. And there's a really good example in here where we have, we're in the main lobby and there's a general panic that everyone's running around trying to find the, the rat... The health inspector is there, and they're trying to hide various things from him. There's the rat poison problem going on. Manuel thinks that the rat's been shot. Everything's going off. There's, everyone's screaming and panicking. The health inspector's looking around thinking, what on earth is going on here? Silence falls for a moment, and Sybil just says... He's from Barcelona. <laughs> which is just perfect because it's basil's line she's saying it for a change but but it's all about the timing of it yeah yeah and that was i I wrote that down because i thought well that's a perfectly timed bit of dialogue in an otherwise farcical show so i think that gives us a really good opportunity to talk about prunella scales because obviously Mm. she is not quite such a large character as john cleese's character but she's clearly playing a very important role within this this group, within this drama. So tell me a bit more about Prunella Scales. Let's talk about the actor. Uh,
0: yeah, Prunella Scales, again... Probably most famous for this when it comes down to it, but she has done plenty of other stuff. She's a similar kind of background to John Cleese, I guess, that sort of middle class but the money's dried up sort of hmm. thing. She she went to a, a slightly posh school only because she got a scholarship, you know. But then, as we've seen before, there's a different way into acting depending on your class. You either go into rep and kind of work your way up, or you go into kind of posh rep, which is what she did. <laughs> uh, she was working at the Bristol Old Vic. She was uh, you know an ASM there. I'm sorry, what's an ASM? Oh, sorry. Um, Assistant stage manager. Okay. Which is essentially a dog's body. You're just kind of running around making sure things are getting done. And then inevitably it's like oh we, we need someone to play uh, the butler can you do that it's two lines uh, and then you have to do that just like in the middle of doing your job <laughs> but it's the way to get into the company you know. so Prinella Scales did that but at the Bristol Old Vic which just means the whole thing's just a bit posher her big break on TV at least was in Marriage Lines with Richard Bryers, which was kind of a break for both of them in the early six mid 60s right. playing a young married couple adapting to life as a couple as opposed to singles that was it and then she was a a jobbing actor really and 40 Towers was her next big hit and that made her much more of a household name and then in terms of sitcom her biggest thing other than that is After Henry which was sort of in the late 80s. Now that rings a bell. Tell me more about that. She plays a a widow. Her husband Henry has died, and so it's what she does after that. (laughs) It's like about an older woman adjusting to life after her husband died. It was on radio for years, on BBC Radio, and then it was actually, uh, I think it was Thames Television, but it was ITV that turned it into TV. That was a pretty big hit at the time, although it's been kind of forgotten now. And uh, lots of other little sitcom bits. She was in Tesco adverts with Jane Horrocks in the 90s. And she kind of settled into that posh old lady routine uh, that a lot of actresses go into Maggie Smith, Judi Dench, uh, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. She played the queen in something. The classic uh, kind of older uh, actress. Yeah. Posh actress. Uh, she's become a very sort of public face of dementia in a weird way, in a positive way, hopefully, kind of raising awareness of that. But yeah, in terms of really kind of big hits. She never quite became the Maggie Smith, if you know what I mean. She was uh-huh. always just a jobbing actor. Yeah. But doing good work, doing good solid work all the way.
1: She was just a little bit too late for Harry Potter, wasn't she?
0: Uh, John Cleese turned up in that, didn't he? Well, exactly, you yeah. know. I'll tell you what she's really good at. It's something that has turned out I'm a big fan of, although I didn't realize that until we started doing the show business. She's great Mm. at business. (laughs) She's always doing something. Always just at the reception desk, rattling a couple of papers, sorting something out. Apparently that was really her thing. She sorted all that out herself. She sort of figured out what I was doing. And this is another show actually where that's all, everything... Is really tightly rehearsed. Every movement, they know what yes. they're doing. They know why they're doing it. It is not a sloppy production. In the I sense. remember you talking
1: about this when we discussed one foot in the grave, and there was always business going on. There was no spare
0: movement, which is uh, something it turns out I really like. Yeah. <laughs> I think it yeah. really it brings yeah. the, the whole thing to life. So yeah, Faulty Towers. It was a hit. The first series sort of built, but even by the time they were doing repeats, it was getting 12 million viewers by the time they'd repeated it three times. Yeah. And the second series got about 13 million viewers, something like that, I think. So yeah, it was a big success. Obviously, it's been very well-remembered. But also, even before their second series came out, it had been sold to other countries. Other countries have done their own dubbed versions of it. Andrew Sachs did uh, dubbed his own part for the German one, um, in fact. Mm-hmm. It's that sort of comedy that has an international appeal, I think, very physical. Even though I find a lot of the dialogue, uh, linguistically, to be very sharp and clever. I'm yeah. not sure how well that translates. Like I say, I think I I would like more of that. But the physical comedy and the just the rage and and all that sort of thing the, the, really translates easily. Sure,
1: and I agree with you. There is some, there are some great lines in this sitcom. But yes, the driving force of this sitcom is is Basil's rage, mm. but it's
0: it's physicality, and that actually is is one of my major issues with it. It's, it's, when Basil is frustrated and he's trying to make something happen and he can't because of this and he can't because of this and, and he's just winding up, winding up, winding up. That's funny. Yeah. When he's doing something stupid or he gets angry and he's just screaming, Yes. I hate it. And I really, really, and it's like, it's not even like, oh, I don't really find that funny. I hate it. And it's what really turns me off about the show. John Cleese screaming is not funny and it's not entertaining. It's his frustration that's funny rather than his explosion. Yeah. And I think that's because we can ultimately sympathise with him when he's frustrated. Like, oh, he's trying to get this done, he just can't do it. Or even if he does it for a silly reason, like he's he's lied to Sybil and now he has to just go deeper and deeper and deeper to keep covering it. That still works. But when mm-hmm. he's just being angry and shouting at people or being rude, and when he's unlikable, which is what they wanted, yes. it doesn't work for me at all. Yes. So that's kind of ultimately why... It, it falls a bit short for me. But I think it might be the first episode where he's trying to put a picture up. And every time he gets to put the picture
1: yeah. up, Sybil will call him away to do something else. And then they almost replicate that in the second series with the moose's head, which mm. she already thinks is a stupid idea. But he's trying to put it up. And every time every time he tries to put it up, she rings to say, have you put the moose head up yet? And, and he's just getting so wound up, so wound up. You know, that that's funny.
0: That seeing him get so frustrated is what drives the comedy. Yeah. When I sat down to watch this, I was like, I don't really like Faulty Towers. Okay, let's see. I watched that first episode. I was like, oh, this is really good. This is a really tightly scripted, well-made, half-hour farce. Mm -hmm. It's really good. And then I watched the second episode. And that wasn't as good. It was annoying. And then I watched the next episode and the next episode. Some of them are better than others Mm -hmm. for these reasons I've just said. But also, they're very similar. They're all very similar in terms of how they yes. just build and everything. And that ultimately just doesn't have the staying power for me. And, and like the Germans, that the one you just mentioned with the moose head is the Germans episode. It's famous because of all the whole Germans thing. That's but Everybody loves that. But it's not a good episode. The whole bit in the hospital and then with the moose head and he gets knocked unconscious. Yeah. And the fire drill, which is a great bit in itself, but completely unconnected from when the Germans come in. 21 minutes into the episode and it's like, oh, by the way, we've got some German visitors and it's a totally separate episode. And so that's not a well-structured episode in that sense. I would say that The Germans is not about the Germans. It's
1: called The Germans. That is the name of the episode. That's not even... I mean, it's a subplot. It's not the main thrust of the plot at all. But because of the famous funny walk, that's what everyone remembers it for.
0: It's sad, isn't it? He actually goes, oh, I'll do the funny walk, and then does the funny walk. It's like, oh, silly... Remember the Ministry of Silly Walks? Yeah, remember that that, from the Monty Python? Remember that?
1: (laughs) Here's a question for you. When he says, don't mention the war, I mentioned it once, but I think I got away with it. That expression, don't mention the war, Hmm. Was that an expression beforehand or did did this episode of Faulty Towers make that expression? Because it's something that I think, say all the time.
0: Yeah, I don't know of any other occasion to, that it's been said as in before this. No, I, like, you might, maybe this uh, was the originator of that. If we're giving Cleese credit for writing that line, then, you know, that is a, there's some legacy for you. That is a line that stood <laughs> the test of time. Well, speaking of legacy, that's one thing he did. In 2006, he released a song called Don't Mention the World Cup, in which uh, it was sort of... Sweet Jesus! I guess the idea, yeah, well, let's not, there's less said about that the better. But let's talk about some other embarrassing things John Cleese has done with his oh career. God. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, John Cleese is a man who, uh, after his third divorce in 2008, had a lot of uh, money to pay to an ex-wife who he uh, mm-hmm. did not have a great deal of affection for anymore. And so he did a lot of stuff, yeah. <laughs> including a Specsavers advert in which he thrashes the car Oh god. Uh, uh, it's it's it quite sad to see really. But you know But there's there was other sort of legacy in that sense. There's um back at the actual time when the show was going out, uh Andrew Sachs did a Halifax advert as, as Manuel, Manuel. Perhaps not officially referred to as Manuel, but you know, as a Spanish waiter and Yeah. I feel less bad about that. It's like yeah, you're a job in acting. Well if you only made three hundred and fifty quid. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Definitely. But John Cleese doing it 40 years
1: later is just a little bit painful. I think John Cleese has always had a very open-minded approach to making money, hasn't he? And again, yes. you know, perhaps the divorce is the reason why. But John Cleese has done a lot of rubbish over the years, hasn't he? Let's be honest.
0: Yes, he has. And in fact, if we want to speak about his career as kind of after this, mm. he never made it into... he tried, but he never made it into being a kind of lead actor, in well, films? we talked about the Monty Python films,
1: didn't we? So they came in the late seventies, yeah. early eighties. What about the other films he made? Specifically, A Fish Called Wonder was his big leading role, wasn't it?
0: But that's it. Yeah, that's
1: the big leading role. There was role a sequel to it, which no one saw. Fierce Creatures.
0: Yeah, there's a couple of others where he was playing
1: the lead, but Clockwise, just nothing that hit. He plays a head teacher. Well, yeah. Basically, he plays Basil Falti, who's got out of the hotel business and become a head teacher.
0: Yeah, exactly. And but A Fish Called Wanda was a massive hit. He was Oscar nominated, in fact, for writing really? it. I didn't know that. Yeah, but that was it and then when they tried to follow it up um, with fierce creatures it didn't it didn't really fly. Mm. He's obviously never been struggling for work and he's earned a lot of money and faulty towers is certainly something he's going to be remembered for for a long time. Since then, apart from a fish called Wonder, I don't know anything I could point to and go, "Oh, that's a classic" Bit of John Cleese right there. Yeah. He did Bond, I suppose, didn't he? he did
1: Unfortunately,
0: I think John Cleese, certainly in the last 10 or 15 years, has just become an
1: irascible old man, really, hasn't he? He's become the major, essentially. You know, he's just <laughs> the old man shouting at clouds. I think it comes to us all eventually, doesn't it? And, and I agree with you, despite all the Monty Python material, I shut my eyes and think of John Cleese, it's Basil Faulty, that's that's how
0: I yeah. picture him. In terms of other legacy things, it seems like there was talk of getting a Manuel spin-off and it never came to anything. Go on then Alan, pitch it to me. What's your what's your Manuel spin-off? <laughs> Manuel gets his own hotel, that's that's it in it, it's got to be that. Well,
1: thinking about uh, on the buses go on holiday, (laughs) uh, Seto and Son go on holiday. How about Manuel runs his own hotel in Spain? He has all English staff, and it's drunken
0: football fans and holidaymakers that come over from England to stay in his hotel. Yeah, it's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew Sachs did do his best to try and make uh, some money out of it. He released a few singles as Manuel, including one a cover of "Shut Up Your Face," uh, the Joe Dolce hit, uh, which is pretty much exactly what you expect it to be.
1: A boy, it make me sick just to make a lousy buck got a feeling like a
0: fool and then my mama, sure would said to me What's the matter, you? Get Got the no respect
1: Joe Dolce, Shut Up Your Face, which famously kept Ultravox's Vienna off number one. <laughs> yeah, he's and a number uh, one smash hit.
0: Place, uh, shut up your
1: face. And now, because my brain is in sitcom mode, I'm just thinking of um, Leonard Rossiter's cat in Rising Dam. <laughs> well, Andrew Sachs did appear in one
0: episode of Rising Dam. Oh, the circle is complete. <laughs> Obviously, one of the major legacies of it, uh, there have been some remakes, mm-hmm. but not very successfully. And and uh, I tell you what, any problems I have with Forty Towers in terms of it not being quite smooth enough or the fast mm-hmm. not quite working... When you watch these American remakes you really appreciate how good Faulty Towers is. <laughs> because
1: what? so yeah. you you're saying American, but you also mentioned earlier it was remade in Spain. Were
0: there other foreign language? Not remade, it was it was dubbed in Spain. Ah, so I beg your pardon. In, in, right, okay. So it has been dubbed all over the world. There was there was a German attempt at a remake that I didn't I don't think it got past a pilot. That was quite late on. But Yes, there was an official American remake very early on. So the first one was in 1978 in fact, before uh-huh. the second series came out and it was called Snavely, Snavely. That's the name yeah, of the hotel. That was the, the name of the uh, hotelier, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was just a pilot It it didn't go any further than that. And and you can watch it. It's on YouTube. And um, it's pretty rough. There's definitely a few things that are obviously bloopers and shouldn't Mm -hmm. have happened, and they've just sort of left them in. But it's a pilot, so I guess they're not quite trying to be that smooth. And it doesn't work. It is really bad. Like, they just cram too many things in there. It's just one of those things where the characterization is so important. Yes. It's really not very good.
1: All right, folks. The staff fire drill will start in a moment when you hear the alarm. So just uh, What are you all standing around for? Well what, what do you want us to do? I don't care what you do. <laughs> I don't know why we go to all this trouble anyway. She just let you all burn.
0: <laughs> but then they had another go in 1983 with B Arthur. Oh, who was obviously a, a very fine comic A golden actor. girl. Well, this is pre-Golden Girls, yes, wow, but yeah, of course, um, yeah. She is playing the the Basil faulty type, as in she's the hotelier. She's the one running around getting frustrated by things. Uh-huh. But there's no spouse there. So she's kind of a combination of Basil and Sybil. Yeah, That's kind of a, a missing element. She has a son there, who is more like a foil. I've only watched one episode. They made 13 episodes, I think, but only 10 went out and they cancelled it before oh they even showed them. That's obviously not a good sign. Uh, I watched the one where they find a dead body and they're trying to get rid of it. Yeah. So it was based on Kipper and the corpse. Bit different though, in many ways, but they have, all these remakes have a Manuel style character. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's one very consistent thing. Although not done anywhere near as well. You get a real appreciation of how skilled Andrew Sachs is when you see other people trying to do it. The Arthur is fairly solid, but the writing's not that good. It's all very sort of signposted gags and, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah.
1: I am displeased with my view. All I can see out of my window is trees!
0: But what did you expect to see out of a window in California?
1: The Eiffel Tower? (laughs) Or perhaps Krakatoa erupting? What I expect to see, Mrs. Cartwright, is a view of the ocean. well, maybe you didn't notice it. It's that big blue thing between the land and the sky. I know what it looks like. I just can't see it because Amanda's by the sea is not by the sea. Well, then, may I suggest that you move to a hotel that is closer to the sea or preferably in it?
0: (laughs) They did another one, another attempt in 1999 with John Larroquette as yeah. the Basil type. Now, this one was called Pain, Payne, P-A-Y-N-E. <laughs> and he, the, the main character, is called Royal Pain. Oh, my God. So you can see the level we're working on I mean, there. Is, yeah, that's not good, is it? And it's, that's pretty shoddy as well. That's another one that they, they did one series. It got cancelled partway through. They, they, nobody cared. Everybody hated it.
1: You don't have a clue, do you?
0: about what darling
1: today is
0: the first day of the rest of your life
1: <laughs> or for you perhaps the last
0: i'm ready i've had enough <laughs> i see i'm in trouble uh, so yeah three really um majorly failed attempts to recreate it for the american market yeah, obviously the style of comedy, like I say, I think this style fast doesn't work on TV. So if you're not going to put the effort in to make it work as well as you can, it's not going to work. And and certainly the pain one, you could tell that is not it's filmed in a much more what we call the American style, which is they will just stop and do a retake or, or, or yeah, move the yeah. cameras right into the set. And, and it's not quite the, th- the three, four camera setup that you're used to. No, so they could do better at that. And it's just weak. But those those are the kind of the official remakes not done very well. And with that our stay at faulty towers is complete. So while we check out, why don't you check out our social media channels? Yes, we are at BritcomPod on Instagram and Twitter. And also have a look at our YouTube page, which is British Sitcom History, because not only are there our podcasts in video form, but also lots of other extra content. If you like the show, then please do rate and review us on iTunes, but also check out our other episodes. This is episode one of series two. That means there's a whole other series that you may not have listened to yet and lots more to come. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed and we hope you will be back next time.